sorry, we're not in life to support our business. We're in business to support our life. It, we have it totally ass backwards. Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Egnall, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. My guest on today's episode of the Inspire Podcast is not my traditional guest. As you know, most of the people I've been on have been executives, senior leaders from large organizations. Uh, And today I have someone from an entirely different perspective. His name is Mike Michaelowitz. He is an author. He's a speaker. He's a very prolific author. Last count, he had five books. And he's really in the business of helping business owners challenge orthodoxies, push themselves, and design and run their businesses in ways that are profoundly fulfilling for life. So I was obviously interested in it, in his insights personally as a business owner, but I was also interested for in having him on the podcast because the work that he really does is around challenging orthodoxy, pushing people who have deeply held, stubbornly held as entrepreneurs to views and pushing them to think and believe differently. And so he talks to me about some of the orthodoxies that he tries to chip away at, how he does it, and when you just can't get through to someone, how, uh, where to go from there. So enjoy the conversation. It's a very, uh, he's a very energizing uh, presence, and I know you will like what he has to say. So I'm really excited today to have Mike Michalowicz. Did I get it right? <laughs> Yeah, you uh, nailed it. And it's funny, Bart, as you were saying, I, actually, one of my colleagues here is a former high school friend uh, who came to work here as a part-timer, and she calls me my high school nickname, which is Michaela Schitz. Uh, so the entire <laughs> office the entire office has picked it up now. and so No it, mercy. It, whatever you say is better than that. Good. It's a, it's a low bar to, to have to cross. So uh, exactly. Feel <laughs> well, now that I've crossed that bar of mediocrity, you know, Mike, <laughs> uh, it's great to have Mike Michalowicz and uh, on the Inspire podcast. Uh, Mike is an author, an entrepreneur, uh, you know, as someone who's written one book, I'm in awe of you having written five books. You've got your uh, five books in, in a relatively short period of time. You're you're not only prolific as an author, but you're a podcaster. You've got a great podcast, Profit First, and uh, I'm I'm really thrilled to have you on the podcast today. Welcome, Bart. Thank you so much. It is an absolute joy to be with you. Yeah, and the reason uh, I, I'm excited to have you, I mean, selfishly, you know, uh, your writing uh, and the work that you do uh, is geared towards helping business owners. Uh, think differently about what it takes to run successful businesses. Mm-hmm. So success, selfishly, uh, you know, I get benefit out of talking with you uh, and I get to ask you things that probably most people don't. Um, but I also thought that it would be great to have you on because your work is really, uh, as I've um, come to see, designed to challenge established thinking. 
uh, in entrepreneurs. And we entrepreneurs get very set in our ways. We think we know everything. And you are good at shaking us out of our stupor and uh, our tunnel vision to think differently about what it takes to grow a business. So uh, I thought, you know, even if people listening aren't entrepreneurs, they can benefit from your experience in what it takes to challenge establish thinking, establish behavior, and get people to work differently. So maybe uh, just before we dive into that, you can just give us the backstory. You know, what led you to this line of work uh, and uh, to, you know, tackle these uh, difficult um, established beliefs? So uh, it was the realization I had these same established beliefs. I, uh, I, I, as an entrepreneur, I had some as we define, as, as commonly it's defined success, I had that. I sold a couple companies. And um, then one day woke up realizing I had no clue how to run a business. And the reason I was became aware of this is because my third endeavor as an angel investor was a total collapse. Uh, everything I started, everything I touched turned to crap. It was the opposite of Midas. <laughs> and um, I, I lost all of my wealth, my financial wealth. And um, it resulted in years of depression, um, a couple of years, what's called functional depression. By the way, self-diagnosis, I, w- I didn't, wasn't professionally diagnosed, but went through depression. And um, a friend of mine one day um, met with me and I was telling him about my challenges. I, I removed myself from any social scene and just, I don't know, I was just lamenting. And he said, you know, one thing he did was write a journal for himself, which is the guy version of diary, but he said, I, you know, I maintain a diary and, um, he goes, it's unbelievable uh, how effective it is in, in relieving, uh, the stress of that inner talk. And specifically he said, most guys think a journal or most people think a journal is a recording of your successes and progress and goal setting. He said, no, it's just an outlet to write any thought that's on your mind. Just write it. Um, it's an outlet and it releases that steam. And that brought clarity back to my life. I just started writing down whatever I felt, anger at myself, anger at the world uh, for my failure, uh, and just was writing. And it started to relieve my distraction from constantly thinking about what a failure I was, and it started to change my perspective. I started documenting my understandings of things and, and started to ask myself, what if I was wrong about this? And that journal ultimately became uh, the inspiration to become an author. The, the, the one thing that struck me, I think that may be significant for your listeners, Bart, is uh, I've heard that question a million times, like if you had all the money in the world, what would you do? And I love the question because it it suggests that you have a freedom to choose any any activity or vocation in your life. The only problem with that question is it it presumes you have all the money in the world and that <laughs> it, pre, it presupposes the only way to achieve that is by having all the money in the world. So it actually prevents it from becoming a reality. I found there's another complimentary question that has to run in parallel. And it says, when you have no money, what's the vocation you choose to support your life? And when all the money in the world question is this answer is the same as no money in the world answer, which for me was author. I wanted to be an author one day, and now that I had nothing, I said, I want my vocation to be an author, and I know I can make a living doing this if I do it, quote unquote, right. And they lined up, and I said, okay, it's go time. And uh, so I'm now thankful for that period of my life, and the lack of money, it triggered me to take this, quote unquote, bold step into what I really wanted to do. And you're, you've made it. <laughs> you have 
five books. You've got a, a sixth one in production, or at least the germ of an idea yep. <laughs> there. Um, and it sounds like, in some ways, you did for yourself what you now help other business owners or entrepreneurs do, which is to rethink assumptions, right? Just back to your point around the, you know, the all of the money in the world. Yeah, so the, and these are all challenges that I've had. So, uh, you know, I've written five books. I literally have 25 documented books I want to write. I mean, I have basic outlines for them. All challenges I've faced. And I don't even think that scratches the surface as entrepreneurs, the challenges we face, but these are all very personal issues that I've had to overcome or am trying to overcome too. Hmm. So let's turn to some of the, the challenges or the entrenched beliefs that you help others, uh, your readers, your listeners break away from. What are some, what would be the first kind of most common belief when you get a reader, get a listener and you say, okay, we got to change this. Well, <laughs> I don't know if there is a most common, there's so many. Um, I, I do think the, the bigger is better mentality. So many entrepreneurs are growth minded and that's how I was too. Like all I got to do is grow and think that growth will solve all problems. I, I want the work as much. If I grow more, I will be making more money. If I grow more, all these you know, positive benefits that come out of growth. And it's heralded in the media. Um, you know, you, you see stories about Tesla and, and Elon Musk is on the cover of this and that magazine and how wonderful he is and, or whoever the hot entrepreneur, Steve Jobs or whoever it is, Estee Lauder, whoever the, the hot entrepreneur is of the moment. And we then think for us to achieve what they achieve, we have to grow, grow, grow and, and follow the same patterns they did, you know, get, get signed up in Ivy league school, drop out your freshman year, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, get venture capital and, uh, welcome. You're, you're the billionaire like Mark Zuckerberg. And I think, uh, I think the problem is we don't realize they are literally the lottery winners. And sometimes I don't know if they really won the lottery. I think they may have some misfortune, but it, it's like seeing a lottery winner who makes a uh, hundred million dollars and saying, Oh, if I want to make a hundred million dollars, I better you know, bet on the lottery every day, you're going to lose. It's just some people happen to be in the right place at the right time. And I'm not suggesting these aren't extremely intelligent and driven people, but I'll tell you, I've met hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs now over the last 10 years through speaking and so forth. Uh, many just in, in passing moments, other ones, deep conversations and consistently extremely driven, extremely intelligent, extremely dedicated people. So I don't think that's the difference. I think it's a flaw though, to think that that growth is the solution. I am adamant that the right size business can find us, that we uh, can choose how to have impact if we want to be deep or broad. And many times, deep impact um, is the better impact that we can have. And that won't result in a big business, but it will result in a business that changes lives in a, a magnificent way. Uh, and that's a very successful business to me. So I think that mentality of grow at all costs is a bad mentality. Hmm. Yeah, and I, that certainly resonates with me. Can you give me an example of an entrepreneur you met who initially was, and perhaps to their own detriment, was uh, in pursuit of growth at all costs, and they made this switch to this focus on deep impact with, with um, powerful results? Yeah, so I'm in a, uh, a community called EO, 
uh, called the Entrepreneurs Organization, and, and they have about, I think, 14,000 members. I remember going to the first meeting. Uh, I joined them 18 years ago when I started my business, and I walked into this room. It was an established group. I was the new kid there, and it was this chest-pounding fest. There was a guy, his name's Joe. I, I don't want to share his last name because he, he may listen into this or the word may get out to him, but his name was Joe. He was in the New Jersey chapter that I joined, and he was chest-pounding as much as anyone else. And it was all about size, uh, all about how big could you get. And, and, and that was the entire discussion. Like someone would walk in the room and say, oh, my business is $2 million. And the next guy next to him would laugh and go, Pff, I'm $7 million. And then the next guy, Pff, $8 million. And then I would sit there and feel smaller and smaller about myself, but committing, I got to be the $12 million guy. Well, Joe um, had grown a company that was in the multi-millions, uh, producing a... Uh, um, uh, a product that like Walmart and, and Dollar Tree and those type of stores would buy, uh, produce in China type of stuff. And he, he was in the mentality of, I gotta, to get bigger, I gotta be in Walmart. Um, and so the business was growing in revenue, but it was decreasing in profitability and increasing in stress. And I'll never forget Joe about, mm, this is maybe 10 years ago. So 18, for eight years since I met him, he was, you know, grow, 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 Walmart, I need that big behemoth. And he was getting in. And then 10 years ago, he, uh, he came back uh, to, and talked with me and said, you know what, Walmart's crap. And, and now that, you know, Walmart's not bad. Uh, I understand why they do what they do, but for him, they were a bad customer. And he said, uh, I'm no longer going to serve Walmart. I'm actually going to prioritize the small guys. Uh, I'm going to focus on them because we can serve them better. And I can actually get more joy out of working with them. His business profitability exploded. He sold his company now maybe six years ago, so it was only four years of doing this, and the business exploded in profitability. Revenues actually even grew too, but not. it wasn't off-the-hook growth. It was consistent growth. But now these little guys were being cared for like they never had been before. And I, I got to just share one little antidote about his story, which was so powerful. When he did this, when he made this decision, he, he told his employees, no one could believe it because Walmart was 50% or more of the revenue at the time. He put a sign up above everyone's desk and it said, when the phone rings, our policy is always to answer on the first ring. If the first ring is from Dollar Tree, say one of these secondary stores, start taking their order. And when Walmart calls while you're on the taking the order, let them go to voicemail and call them back. Then he said, this was the powerful part. If you're on the phone with Walmart taking your order and the phone rings and it's Dollar Tree, immediately disconnect from Walmart. Hang up on them and stop the order and get the order from Dollar Tree. So it wasn't like he just fired Walmart. He started to curtail his services to prioritize his true best customers, which was actually a smaller is better mentality, and it paid off big time. So another one you've mentioned to me, which really resonates for me, is this myth of grinding. I mean, we know, oh. you know, I'm sure everyone has read, you know, the Elon Musk interview with New York Times and, you know, the blow up that he's had. Uh, oh, my gosh. Where he talks about never leaving the factory, never leaving the office, you know, telling Ariana Huffington there's no other way to do this, right. which I just thought was you know, ludicrous. But this myth of grinding is one that, that's elevated and held up in, in so many industries. And, and tell me why that is and how you tackle that. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm so happy about this moment with Elon Musk because I, I, I hope it's bringing awareness that it is not healthy to be a workaholic. It is a aholic issue, right? It's a disease, mm -hmm. and um, it's propagated so much now. There's there's 
people constantly talking about what's your hustle like, what's your grind like. I, I, I see it all the time. <laughs> Very famous authors. I mean, a thousand times more famous that? than me. What do they mean when they say, what's your hustle? Are they asking you to quantify it? Yeah, yeah. Like, like how hard are you working? It, listen, I used to do this too. It, it's the old how big is it kind of uh, contest. I, I walked in, there's this guy named John Bates. Um, who's actually visiting our office in a couple of weeks. He's become a coach of mine now. He owned a business um, back during the dot-com uh, bust. And uh, he was running a business. And I remember him calling one day and said, hey, Mike, I, uh, I slept only four hours last night. I worked my ass off. And my response was, John, I only slept three. Like I felt... I felt gotcha. I was the winner. <laughs> I was the winner because I slept less. Like, what idiocy. And that's the, you know, what's your hustle like? What's your grind like? Like... Now, here's the, I understand the sentiment. The sentiment is that building a business is not, you know, I have an idea, I'm going to sit on the beach and drink Mai Tais. But we've taken to such an other extreme. In the early stages of the business, a lot of the business success and survivability depends on you. You're effectively giving life to a business. So you have to put in some exhaustive hours in the very beginning. But sadly, this becomes the sentiment of how to run a business that I have to be available for it 24 by seven. I got to be constantly contributing. I got to carry this thing on my shoulders and it's, it's now at epidemic levels. People are just sacrificing all of their lives. We are not in business. Oh, I'm sorry. We're not in life to support our business. We're in business to support our life. It, we have it totally ass backwards. And, um, so I'm, I'm against this. I, I believe a business is not about grind and hustle. It's about choreographing the and orchestrating the resources we have to work collectively to achieve a vision that we have. I think we define the outcome we're looking to achieve and then we gather other resources, people, team members, and, and figure out a way about getting to that goal efficiently. I don't think it's about hustle and grind. I think it's about thinking. And we're skipping thinking and we're just pushing, uh, making effort, and that, that's the mistake. Well, and all the research shows that after about 40 hours a week, your productivity plummets. It shows that you need time away from the grindstone to do your best thinking, to be creative. And uh, look, I mean, when I was in my early 20s, I, I loved working all the time because I thought it was how I maximized my productivity. But I, I'm far more productive now by having balance and, and recharge time for mental thinking. But it's taken me, it's taken me a long time to, to get to that point. How, how do you get people, you know, who are very comfortable in that hustle mindset to step away? And is it difficult? Yeah, so difficult, right? Because it, it becomes entrenched in us and it becomes our definition of self. I have a, a good friend, a very close friend, uh, who's got a wildly successful business. And I, I don't even want to say his name uh, uh, or his business, but it's, it's a it's a $150 million to $200 million business in Arizona and Scottsdale, that area. And uh, every time I talk to him, I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, hustle grinding. Uh, he's, a, he's a young guy. Uh, he, he has a girlfriend, but I don't know if he's ever seen her. Uh, he, he's always working. Um, it, it's all about do, do, do. And his business is his life, and his life is his business. That Actually, when he refers to his girlfriend, maybe he's actually talking about his business. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't you can't be think, sure. <laughs> I can't. I can't be sure. I can't be sure. I I cannot convince him otherwise. You know, because we have these false positives. You see the numbers: hundred and fifty million dollar company. You know, that's a, he's defining that as extraordinary success. I, I start. I used to consider that extraordinary success. I question it now. But um, he's like, look, I'm so successful. Clearly, it's working. But what's the trade off? 
I, I am unable to convince other people. We have to convince ourselves. And I, I think the only way to convince ourselves, sadly for some of us, is the heart attack. The day your girlfriend or wife or husband um, or whoever your spouse is decides not to show up because you haven't shown up. I wrote a story uh, in, was it in Profit First? I think it was in Profit First or maybe in the Pumpkin Plan, but I interviewed a guy who was very famous in the indie circuit. He wasn't a racer, but he was a supplier of um, automobile racing parts. He'd go to every racing conference. Um, I interviewed his wife, and uh, she said, listen, I, that, that's not my husband. It's a, it's a guy that just kind of swings by and, and drops off some money. It's more of like an uncle that I'm living with. And uh, we've decided that this is acceptable, but it's not a relationship. It's, it's just a, a caregiver for this family. Um, and, and that's a choice he's making. And I think he is blind to it. I, actually, I'm convinced he's blind to it. He considers himself a contributor, a provider, um, but he's not providing the most critical elements that many families need. Uh, an available father, uh, uh, you know, a parent, a, 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 someone who, who shares love and, and time. All those elements have been ripped out for the one thing they're providing, which is money. And uh, we all know money doesn't bring happiness, but we all believe, you know, even though we know it, uh, we don't believe it. And I don't know. I, so so I, I've seen people tear apart. And to answer your question, I've never been able to convince someone else, but I have convinced at least one person, which is myself. Well, that's, I mean, that's incredible humility. I mean, I, I think, you know, going into this conversation, I thought, oh, you know, well, I'll get this, uh, you know, here's the wizard's wand, right? That Mike waves. Yeah, yeah. And uh, no, but I think it is very true that, you know, sometimes it takes a life setback and that's the only thing that can shake you out of it. Like, like I don't know if you've ever smoked in your life. I, I haven't, but I, I know quite a few people who've smoked. And I've never met a smoker who doesn't understand the consequences. Like, smoking causes cancer. Smoking will kill you. You can go to any smoker on this planet, and they all get it. So it's not a question about the knowledge. It's a question about, um, does it really affect them? It, does it really matter now? It's focus on the moment and not the long-term consequences. Sadly, for most smokers, there's when there's a significant health scare, heart attack, uh, lung cancer identified, they, they can stop smoking on the dime. And this isn't true just for smokers. This is true for everyone. You know, when, when your spouse is about to walk out on you, that's when we have the wake-up call. Um, or the day when you, you look at your life and you're like, oh my God, I, I don't remember the last 20 years of my life except sitting behind a computer. You know, sadly, a lot of us have the heart attack. The one little wizard wand trick that was done to me is a coach of mine once sat me down and said, Mike, we're going to play out your life in five-year increments. And he goes, how we're going to start is we're going to look at your last, I was 30 uh, when he did this with me, at the last 30 years, uh, and then especially the last 10 years in business. And he goes, once people are in a pattern for five years, he goes, rarely, actually, it never changes unless there's a life moment. So he said, in the last 10 years in business, you're clearly in this process of grind, hustle, you know, work behind the computer, work ridiculous hours. He goes, now let's replicate this out to the final day of your life. Hey, look at, you missed this, you missed that. He gave me the Elon Musk moments. You, you missed your, your siblings, you know? And that, that image is in my, my mind forever. And that did at least awaken me to this problem. I wrote a book on language and jargon and why it gets in the way of leadership. And one piece of jargon that I loathe is the term pivot. And so it was interesting when you said, this is a term that you loathe as well, perhaps not from the language standpoint, but because it's something that we hold up as something every business should do. So 
if you could expand on that. Yeah, the concept of pivot, as I understand it, is to modify our offering as a business to match what consumers want. And when we make the adjustment, if it doesn't match exactly what they want, to adjust again and go through the sequence of adjusting our offering until we're in alignment, or actually that's a bad choice of words because I I think alignment's positive, but keep adjusting our offering until we're catering, that's the better choice, to what the customer wants. Here's the thing. The concept of pivot's nothing new, by the way. It used to be called inflection point, paradigm shift. You know, the concept of changing what we do to match what the end consumer wants. But what's so damaging about this, particularly the concept of pivot, because it shows a fast iterative process, is that we uh, it does not uh, account for what we want. And I have seen entrepreneur after entrepreneur pivot into a business they loathe. And even if they're making money, even if they're catering to the customer's needs, if you hate your own business, that's no business. So the, the terminology I like is alignment. And alignment is to have a keen awareness of our own desires. What are we looking for ourselves? Why do we do this business? How are we being cared for? Then match that up with a customer base that wants what we get joy out of providing. Now you have customers that are receiving a benefit that they value tremendously and is aligned also with what you want. So you're receiving value and that's the ultimate win. So my whole idea is stop pivoting, stop disregarding yourself, start aligning. That's what we need to do. Well, I like that because it really fits with the other two orthodoxies that you challenge in that we're told, you know, pursue revenue at all costs, work at all costs, do exactly what the market wants. And what's woven through your thinking is start with what's going to satisfy you in life. You know, start with you know a business that you're actually going to enjoy and a life that you're going to enjoy and then design that because who cares if you're a $50 million business if you hate it. So that, that makes a lot of sense. I can't tell you how many people, Bart, um, when I declared I'm going to become an author, uh, said, are you effing crazy? Really? Uh, <laughs> like, you know, authors don't make money. Um, you, you, you know, you, you might as well be a, a painter or uh, you know, some other kind of creative. And uh, I said, but first of all, this gives me joy. Like, I, I want to do this. I, I have a joy of doing this. But secondly, when, when people challenge your notion, like when, when you tell someone you're going to align your business with your own heart's decree, um, and people are like, well, are you kidding me? You got to make money. Challenge them by asking, well, about your experience. And when, when I told people I'm going to become an author, I said, well, tell me about your experience of being an author. Eight percent of them said, well, I've never been an author. Right. I said, okay, so your, your experience is irrelevant. You have no idea. Right. It's hearsay or just made up. I, I actually interviewed um, Tim Ferriss. We were talking about him off air earlier. And uh, I met with him um, for a couple of hours. And I said, this is a long time ago. This is 10 years ago. I said, Tim, I, I want to pursue being an author. Can you make money doing this? And he's like, uh, yeah, you can actually become a millionaire, right? <laughs> right. So he talks to the right person and you get the right perspective. Um, but the other thing is, you know, people ask me about my stick to itness. My first book, the day, the day one of sales was a total flop. I literally sold zero copies of The Toy Paper Entrepreneur on the launch day, which just to drive that home, Bart, that means my own mother did not buy a book that day. Like, <laughs> That's cold. That was a painful moment. That's cold. But the, the joy and the alignment with my heart um, saw me through that moment, but saw me through countless others. That, you know, And that's why I will be doing this until I take my final breath, because this is a base of joy. But also, it's, I found as a result, the community it resonates with, that it serves. And so there's this 
kind of loop of affirmations now. Uh, the books go out, the community's getting served, and I get a constant stream of feedback now from people saying, this is great, do another one. They're encouraging me. So it starts this nice upward spiral when you align and not just pivot. Well, it makes so much sense. I mean, I think there's, you know, it reminds me earlier, so I'm a big cyclist. That's my drug of choice. And so I was nice. in Girona, Spain for a week-long cycling trip. And I was rooming with someone, uh, this guy Wayne, and he's hilarious. He went, went my, I'm sure, telling the story. Uh, and, you know, Wayne was someone who had an investment banking career. He was uh, in Palo Alto. I'm sure he was, you know, had a big car or whatever, the lifestyle. And he just decided he didn't like it. He, he's like, I was working too hard. It was not something I enjoyed. And what I love to do is paint. So he's a house painter. And oh, cool. the, he just loves it, you know, and he's keen. He gets to work by himself, which he enjoys. He takes the jobs he wants and he is just way happier. And I thought, wow, you know, that's there's so many people that's who, success. who do the first job. That's success. Exactly. You know, you know, the shame about Wayne's story is we'll never hear that. Like Wayne will never be on the cover of Success Magazine or Fortune or Inc. And that's what I think is the problem. Because I think Wayne should be heralded. He made a, a choice saying, this is what satisfies me. This is the source of income uh, that will support the lifestyle as I've defined it. Um, you know, maybe I like the degree of solitude. I like working alone and here's something I can do. I like to see the impact and the change uh, that I can have in a space just by painting. Like, Holy crap, that guy won. Yet won, sadly, exactly. sadly, it'll never be talked about. It'll be Elon Musk, who's having a mental breakdown and is under an SEC investigation and is potentially doing LSD and calling other people pedophiles. And, and listen, I'm just picking the negative stuff about Elon Musk. I, he sounds like he's done wonderful things. But just, the, I want people to know there's many definitions of success, not what we see on the magazine covers. So let's turn to... You've spent your, you know, you've written all these books, you do the podcast, you obviously, as you said, you get this feedback loop, loop from entrepreneurs and other business owners who are saying, keep it up. You're, you're challenging people to live a different kind of life, to build different kinds of businesses. So I'm wondering if you could reflect on the lessons you've learned about how you influence thinking. And, you know, I think I've already heard, picked one up that there's only so much you can do. But clearly you're still in this line of work because you believe that there's an opportunity to, to help people think differently. And for anyone out there who has to challenge thinking or orthodoxies, what, what would be some of the pieces of hard-won wisdom that you would share? Yeah, so the big one is uh, live into your idiosyncrasies, amplify them. Different is better. Uh, the story, oh my God, this one just lights me up. And uh, I, I am I'm truly blessed to get countless stories. Actually, as we're talking now, another one just came in. Um, because I, I tell people my my books that you can email me because uh, I read every single email. Um, and, and now I'm approaching like 50 or 60 stories a day. I, uh, unfortunately, I've, in some cases, I have to cut to a scan because they're, <laughs> they're so long. But um, one of my favorite stories and one that, triggered an investigation and I subsequently wrote about this this business is a baseball team, uh, the Savannah Bananas. And they have become hands down my favorite baseball team of all time because the owner challenged all the notions of what a baseball team's all about. B baseball in the traditional sense is about a winning team. You do whatever you can to get the best players, do whatever you can to win the tournaments and the more successful you are in winning, more fandom you'll attract and therefore you'll make more revenue. And Jesse Cole, the founder of Savannah Bananas said, well, 
what if I throw out all the principles of baseball and I define a winning team as a entertainment center? What if my team is the most entertaining team of all time? What if people want to pull their, their children out and their parents and their grandparents uh, to these games because it's a constant stream of entertainment? What if the new circus is no longer Ringling Brothers and Barnbelly Circus? What if it's a baseball game? And uh, the Savannah Bananas, as a result, is the only baseball team, I believe now in history, to sell out three consecutive seasons, not ticket sales, because any broker could do that, literally physical sold out, standing room only in the stadium. They're a minor league, actually they're a, uh, it was called a all-star team, but like a minor league team, average attendance is 300 people to a game. They average over 5,000 to a game. Oh. <laughs> they, they, yeah, they cannot, you, there is no sitting room. Uh, if anyone listening in right now has been to a Savannah Bananas game, I bet you it was the best game they've ever been to. And the antics are insane. I went down there last season, uh, was honored by throwing out the opening pitch, which at the last minute, they swapped out the baseball with a toilet paper roll. And so <laughs> uh, my opening pitch was, this, well, I, I, I toilet papered the catcher effectively. Uh, then they announced from the, the top of stadiums, we're about to do the banana in the pants routine. It's not what you think. What they did is these these guests who come to every single game ran to the upper decks, grabbed bananas, and start throwing them off the decks. And the baseball players have these bloomy pants on. I don't know if that's a word, bloomy, but these big, huge pants with a big gap. And they start running around trying to catch bananas in the pants. <laughs> um, the first base, the first base coach. Uh, is the best moonwalker I've seen in my life. When he calls out signals, you're wetting your pants of how this guy is dancing out <laughs> steel signals and stuff like that. It's the most entertaining game. And I'll never forget that that game I went to because as I walked out, I remember just just goosebumps of joy and laughter and fun. And I walked out and uh, I saw a guy have a Savannah Bananas tattoo. He had tattooed his body with the logo. And uh, I tapped on his shoulder and I said, hey, uh, clear, you're, clearly you're a fan. I just loved my first experience here. Um, but I didn't see the score. Who won the game? <laughs> and he looked at me and goes, I don't know. I don't know. And he ran. He just ran off to watch the marching band come marching through with his kids. And I think here you have a guy who's tattooed himself with the logo of the company and he, and he doesn't know who won the game. That proves the point that this owner, Jesse Cole, has redefined what baseball is because Jesse Cole has these idiosyncrasies. He played into being different, and the community is clearly responding to it. Hmm. So, how do you, if you've got someone who's in the big company, for example, where corporate culture is entrenched, and they feel constrained, you know, their their own identity constrained, their own way of communicating by the culture? What advice would you give to them? Yeah, you got to start the uprising, right? And and we've seen this at the greatest levels, uh, geopolitics, right? I mean, someone's got to start an uprising. Kaspernak uh, uh, right now is right now in the news because of his advertisements with Nike. Uh, and Nike sales, I heard this morning, went up 31%, right? Someone's got to take a stance. Now, here's the problem. When you take a stance, you will be the oddball. You will be the weirdo. You'll be the one who kind of gets excommunicated from the community because you're not fitting in. The, the key is the fortitude in this. And the question is, is it more important for you to live into who you are called to be, your natural self, or is it more important to fit into the community? 
this is an active choice we have, but I will tell you from my own experiences, if I don't cater to who I naturally am, it's only a matter of time before I start to resent myself, uh, become depressed and crunch myself. It's really when I live into who I am that I feel best. Two things are going to happen. Either someone else is going to catch on and say, finally, someone's starting the uprising and stand with you. That's when a movement begins. Or you're going to get rejected from the community. You'll be spit out. And I'll tell you, when they walk you out that door because you're not like them, that is a day of relief because now you can find the community who does resonate with you. That's how you have to do it. And it takes courage. There's a reason they say people live in quiet desperation because most of us don't have the courage to stand up to be who we really are. Unfortunately, that's the only way I've ever seen a way to affect change. Well, and, and what you've described really in all these uh, orthodox beliefs are, uh, you know, kind of entrenched community norms. And, you know, whether it's stepping away from that and realizing I don't need to have the big business or I don't need to work 80 hours a week or I don't need to change my business. It's better to be small and do something I love. You're, you're really talking about that same thing, having the courage to be who you are, to say it's okay to go against the tide. And, you know, I'll, I'll be better for it. And so I think that's, you know, that's really the big lesson I'm taking away from your life and your, your work that to define who you are and what, what drives you and then to just tune out the rest. Yeah. I just, my, my little final thought around this is, um, what would you say to your best friend? Like if, if you sat down at the coffee shop uh, or a bar and your friend says, I need to talk to you and they tell you, you know, I don't fit in this company. I, I, I think I need a change or, or I, I'm not X, Y, Z. What would you tell them? And then I want you to realize you're always with your best friend. You are your best friend. So you're always, you're always with that person because it's you. And so you have to treat yourself like your best friend. That's what we need to do have that candid best friend conversation with ourselves and act upon it. It will never guide you wrong. It's never guided me wrong. I can't imagine ever guiding anyone wrong. It's very good advice and something I'm going to think about for a long time. Uh, Mike, really appreciate you sharing your, your stories with me, uh, your, your insights. Um, and just, you know, as a personification of what you're, what you're teaching, you know, it's clear just talking to you that like you have found uh, your own tribe, if you will, right? And that you're, <laughs> you're doing what you love with uh, with writing books. So kudos to you. Thanks, my brother. Thank you. Yeah. So for anyone listening who uh, wants to get your book, wants to, I know there's a there's a free book on your site. Maybe just uh, explain where they can go to start uh, going deeper into some of the work that you do. Oh, thank you. So um, I think the mecca for all my stuff is is the Mike Michalowicz site. Uh, so it's mikemichalowicz.com. Here, here's the deal. I know no one can spell it. I can't spell it <laughs> at times. It, you know, God forbid you get one drink of me and I can't spell my own name. So I made a shortcut. It's MikeMotorbike.com. That was another nickname <laughs> of mine in high school. That was the PC Lean one. into it. Lean into it. Yeah, that was the PC one. The irony is I, I'd never driven a motorcycle in my life. But, <laughs> but if you go to MikeMotorbike.com, it brings you to my site. All my books are there. You can get free chapters so you can explore the books. And um, I also have one of my books called Surge. Uh, available totally for free right now, so you can get that on the site too. Yeah, I'm working my way through it. It's great. It's, uh, oh, thank it's you. lessons from surfing as applied to business. Yeah. So good. Well, appreciate you coming on and uh, keep doing what you do. Thank you, Bart. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mike. The guy just exudes passion, authenticity, and courage. 
and uh, it certainly took away a lot, not only in terms of his lessons, but just the model that he uh, personifies for what it takes to uh, inspire action. Next week, I'm back with another episode. I'm interviewing Elizabeth McGilvray. She's a learning leader at Mercer. It's a global uh, consulting firm. And Liz is talking about how learning's changing, what skills are required uh, for their professionals to lead and inspire in this new world. So it's a good discussion, and uh, I know you'll enjoy it. Uh, Have a great week.